Hello, it's Tim here. This is another episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts. Today's episode is me chatting to my editor from Canongate, Joe Dingley. I thought it was time that we had someone on from inside the industry and we you know, talking talking. Talking isn't talking isn't the past tense of talked. We've talking to a publicist. Uh, that was Millie Seward a couple of episodes ago. And we chatted a little bit last episode to Chris McCrudden, who's an author, but also he did some very, very uh, revealing stat crunching on the uh, top 100 best-selling books in the UK in 2018. So we've kind of been sort of moving around the uh, inner workings of the publishing industry, but I thought it was high time that we actually got an expert, a professional, someone with... Uh, bags of experience who is commissioning books who is working with authors making books better and also is someone who I know and I'm comfortable talking with and has worked with me on making my books better so it just it just seemed like uh, uh, the sort of the apt time also I'm I'm very aware that like even though I did a degree in English literature, English literature and creative writing, and then I did an MA in prose fiction at the University of East Anglia. I actually didn't really get to sit down and chat to an editor. Well, I just didn't get to sit down and chat to an editor properly until, you know, like my books were going through the submission process. And that's, like, not a very low-pressure environment, right? Like That is quite a stressful time. It's a time when you're not wanting to come off as a dickhead um where you feel like your whole fate is in the hands of the stranger you're chatting to it's not a great environment for learning the ropes right and finding out how the industry works so i thought this would be a great opportunity for you to just listen in on me and joe having a chat i ask her the the dumb questions you know what's your job things like that so you just get a, a really low pressure sense of what so when you if you know going down the trad publishing route is something in future that is something that you want and something that uh, comes to you and i i have done the my absolute damnedest on this show to not make it all about here's how you can achieve your dreams and get published i don't think that's what writing's about i don't think being trad published is the you know is the is is the dream or the benchmark or is even right for ev- everyone I genuinely don't believe that. I think maybe if you'd asked me 15 years ago, I would have t- told you a different story. I do think that the environment has changed as well. It is a much... Uh, there's just... there's just. I think the ebook revolution has, has actually changed how authors... And just the internet and people being able to print on demand and things like that. There are a lot of things that didn't exist uh, a long time ago. Uh, I mean, that's a truism, obviously. But, you know, in publishing in particular, um, that make it a bit different. I still think, you know, if, you, if you're self-publishing, that is a, is a, it's a tough route. And I don't think I would be able to find an audience with it because of the weird stuff I write. Because I am incapable of writing a novel myself. I need the help of editors but you can do that obviously you can do that with self-publishing as well but the point is i just thought it was really really it would be really useful for you to hear this just to get an insight um but i'm not in any way suggesting that the route to validation is to be is to be published i I, this is not 
ever going to be like a careers show telling you how to be uh, a published author what I want to teach you is how to well I've said it I've said it a bunch of times haven't I the purpose of this show is to help you write more better and to enjoy it while you do to be happier writing more better and happier that's that, that those are the three things that i feel like i've got some control over those are the three things i feel like I can, I can impart knowledge on and i think those are the three things that often get neglected you know when people talk about how to do a submission letter how this is how to do a query letter but they don't and then and then you great you've done a, a really good query letter but you're not writing because you're not enjoying it god dear we need to get our priorities sorted out but like i think what you'll get out of this apart from just like loads of up-to-date professional uh expert insight into how a publisher and the publishing industry works is is, is you know just is really nice and it's just it's just it's nice to have this kind of conversation it not all be about you know when i was doing the ma at uea we, we had agents and publisher editors in but it was just like it was just like someone had chummed the water and there was this feeding frenzy of people desperately wanting to be able to get the right, say the right thing to be allowed through the gates into the publishing industry and get published. And it wasn't a very nice, pleasant or enjoyable environment to learn about things. So I'm hoping I'm going to give you that um, uh, by introducing you to Joe. If you enjoy the podcast, then here are some things you can do to support me and help me just do more of this really um one you could chuck me some money via my coffee page there's a link below people have just been doing that because the show's not sponsored so it's literally supported by the listeners we're a small podcast and so every little bit helps me cover my website hosting fees and the fees for hosting the podcast on soundcloud i really appreciate all of you who've chipped something in if you would like to support me as an author because i'm i don't get paid for doing this podcast i get paid for writing and selling books um and especially if you like joe and you want to support her as well because uh some of the money will go to paying her salary as well and those of her colleagues please pre-order my next novel the ice house um I, there's loads of reasons why i think it's probably good but i'm not a credible advocate for it so i just appeal to your um your sense of uh, wanting Tim to be all right. I actually, <laughs> I had lunch with my agent and my publicist last week and I I brought up the the road to 1,500 as we've been calling it because of course if all pre-orders get counted towards my first week of sales and so if I were to have from listeners of the show 1,500 pre-orders then, which is, you know, well within the well within the numbers that listen to this right but um then it would mean that the ice house would hit the uk bestseller charts um and when i brought it up um they glanced at each other which i think <laughs> before answering which i think told me everything i needed to know about how they were feeling about it uh, he said well it's um it's a very it's a very ambitious um <laughs> So I think they're trying to protect me and my wee little heart, but I'm all right. I don't have to worry. My emotional welfare isn't riding on this. 
Um, but if you'd like to support me in everything I do, if you think I do good things in the world, and you would like a beautiful first edition hardback copy of The Ice House, my wonderful story, which has got battle nuns and an old lady coming out of retirement to do one last job, and wondrous wondrous creatures and monsters and all sorts of weird things and adventure then uh, please click one of the links below you can if you link uh, if you buy it via mr b's there are indie bookshop in bath then i'm going to go in and sign all those copies if they manage to get up to 100 pre-orders not only will that uh, support them amazingly as they just revamp their premises um but I will uh, produce some uh, a little bit of extra stuff to go into that. And I might start giving a little insight as to what that's going to be, leaking that on my uh, Facebook page or something like that. But I, you know, it's not going to go in there unless I get at least 100. So we shall see on that. I'm um, certainly that would I'd be thrilled for me and for them if we were able to make that possible. Um, I'm going to do some shout outs uh, for anyone who pre-orders, by the way, but I'm not going to do it in this episode. I'm going to record another episode and, and chat about it then because I'm really, you know, I want to do it properly. And uh, uh, but, you know, for several of you have got in touch to let me know that you pre-ordered and I'm genuinely thrilled and I just don't want to miss anyone out. Um, the whole episode isn't going to be me just reading out a list of names that would be um, avant-garde and uh, certainly pushing the limits of... Um, a rather staid podcasting scene I, I you know i'd respect myself for it but i don't want to put you through that so i will um add content to the episode as well um the other thing you can do if you do not oh, oh, oh yeah and you can pre-order through wordery you could go just go into your local bricks and mortar bookshop that'd be fantastic and say hey i'd really like to order uh pre-order the ice house by tim clare and they will say well you have exquisite taste and of course and you could phone them and do the same thing or if you want to you could always do it through amazon if you feel that's your best option. Um, I'm just trying to provide you with a suite of options because there is a huge, huge, huge array of places that you can get books from uh, and Amazon isn't always the cheapest. Uh, aside from that, if there's ways you'd like to support me um, that aren't uh, either of those and uh, don't involve money, then you can um, share this podcast on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can blog about it. Any of those things just do huge 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 amount for me you know share it uh, link to it in a, in a in a forum that you frequent all of those things make a huge difference they help new people find the show and that makes a huge difference and those of you who i know like are going and every time you speak to someone who ha gives any hint of being interested in writing you say you should check out tim Claire's podcast death of a thousand cuts it'll be useless you thank you so so much it makes such a difference and it just is this massive signal boost that i wouldn't otherwise have so don't think that i don't appreciate it don't think that my complete lack of <laughs> communication with you or gratitude or direct gratitude means that i'm indifferent i'm not in <laughs> don't don't think by my lack of giving you any indication that i care think that i, that I don't care i do um i'm just crap uh yeah and uh you could go and uh review either, either of my books on uh well you can't can't review the ice house yet but you could go and review uh uh the uh the honors if you've read it and uh, that always really helps and you know just oh and that's the final thing if you could if you like the podcast you could always rate and review it on itunes that makes a difference as well i'm going to sharp now you can listen to uh joe dingley editor at canongate books um and hear what she's got to say i hope you enjoy hello 
and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show for everyone who loves stories, who loves writing, or maybe people who don't love writing, maybe they just occasionally intermittently like writing, maybe they would like to like writing, or maybe you're just somebody who neither reads nor enjoys stories, but you have a morbid and unaccountable interest for how the sausage is made. Or maybe you're just drawn to me and my um, my animated and yet slightly incoherent introductions. Hello, today um, I'm super duper excited because I have, every time I say that, it sounds like I'm being sarcastic. It sounds like I'm sort of reluctantly going, oh gosh, I'm really excited. I am excited. I'm genuinely excited. You can, it's fine for you to say, Tim, you could just like get a a central level of being slightly less excited. That will be fine. No one would think less of you, but I'm genuinely, and I'm excited. I think life is too short to not be enthusiastic, to be cool. And I would never, ever pull off being cool actually probably that's why I don't mind being excited because no one can ever think of me as a kind of like mysterious uh, enigmatic one at the back of the gig wearing shades so today I am the reason I'm so excited isn't just uh, a locusless excitement it's because I've got um commissioning editor is that your title yeah (laughs) yeah, phew oh my gosh I felt already I felt like I was having I immediately felt that kind of like same sting that I get when I'm trying to ha- when I'm I've made a metaphor involving football or something around a group of men and I know that they're going to challenge me on it or try to talk about a car or something. Um uh yeah, commissioning editor at Canongate, Joe Dingley and also my editor as well. Hello Joe, right. how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for agreeing to um Come on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I'm sorry for that introduction being quite so, even by my standards, that was um, a bit much. <laughs> you were excited. I'm happy. I, I am excited. <laughs> um, not to make you feel incredibly. It's like so much of the early, every episode is me trying to not make the guest feel uncomfortable by how excited I am to have them on the show. I'm like, oh, I just want to. Yeah. Great. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll, I'll wind it in a little bit first. Um. Before we kind of get on to uh, going into the publishing industry and uh, taking it apart brick by brick and exposing the uh, its inner workings, I just wanted to ask so people can get a bit to know you um, how you ended up working in publishing. Mm. Um, well, I'm not sure if it's a very interesting story, but. Great, awesome, <laughs> I have brilliant. been in publishing for um, just under a decade. Um, and it's all I ever wanted to do, honestly. Um, I never really Why? considered being a writer, uh, which maybe sounds odd. Um, all I ever wanted to do was be that person that found great writing, helped it into the world, and hopefully made it a bit better. And I can remember thinking this when I was about... 13 years old um and that's that's all I ever all I ever wanted to do my whole kind of um academic life from 13 onwards how how did you first get the sense that it was something that people did it's gonna sound like a dumb question but like I know when a lot of writers I've spoken to have like a moment where like uh, uh, what I think of as like a permission moment where they discover that writing and being a writer, even though they know books exist, they like encounter someone who has written something mm. or they meet an author for the first time and they go, oh, like 
people do this like someone in the world has to do this i was wondering when you first became conscious of like that a life option was going and being someone who makes books appear in the, the thing world. is i don't i don't actually remember what that was i think i must have seen it in a film or something or read it in a magazine i do remember that the first figure um I knew about, who is, is probably the most famous editor ever to have lived, Max Perkins. I remember being a teenager. I knew you were gonna. I knew you were gonna say someone I'd never heard of. <laughs> and I was feel like a total rube. I, so he, can you give us some context? He worked with some of the biggest twentieth-century writers. Um, Fitzgerald is the one I'm thinking of, um, and I wanted to be that person who. Um, without whom these books wouldn't have found their way into the world. Um, and I remember, this is a very, very corny story, but when I was 13, um, reading Wuthering Heights, like every 13-year-old girl does, weeping, um, thinking somebody, somebody helped this book into the world, somebody decided to take a chance on it, and without that person, would it be here? Would it be in the form that it's in? Um, and yeah, I wanted to be the person that found, found the next thing. Um, yeah. Do you know why, can you think why you kind of, I mean, I'm not, I don't want my question to sound like I'm going, why on earth (laughs) would you want to, but I suppose it's not the obvious thing. I, I, I suppose people with perhaps ironically less imagination might see themselves as being, the author of of those books and it's quite rare that what do you think made you identify with the kind of like the unseen person behind the scenes i must have got an idea from a film in my head but i honestly couldn't tell you which one it was it's a film or a tv show when i was in my early teens it must have been um but i think i was also obsessed with books as objects at that point as well um so my grandparents at the time lived in this big house in the midlands They'd converted it. It was an old um, Victorian orphanage, I think. And it had far too many rooms, far, far, far too many rooms. And they were really, they had really high ceilings. They didn't know what to do with half of it. So one of the rooms became a library. Um, And they were by no means well off or anything like that. None of the books they owned um, were worth anything, I think. But they had loads of old books. Um, and I just loved that room and I loved the books as objects and I imagined who made decisions about the way they looked or, um, you know, just, just who made them. I think that's probably where it came from rather than the actual craft of editing the text. I think it was about um, choosing and making rather than the actual editing at that point, um, if that makes sense. We- yeah, no, it does. It does. I just, I just, I, I, just, I'm just imagining you sitting in the this like library full of old books in an old <laughs> Victorian orphanage, and I'm just like, it, I think you're a much less nervous teenager than I was. I would have been constantly expecting the the sort of eerie tinkle of um of of a of a toddler's laughter that would then disappear. And I mean, yeah, well, it did definitely have that vibe about it. Um, it was no, it's not as grand as maybe I'm making it sound. It was just a big house with too many small rooms. Um, but I was completely delighted that one of them was a library. Um, so yeah, that. 
I love. I mean, I, I, and I, I'm. I know that they, as you know, as we record, like there's been a big controversy recently, the whole thing about decluttering yeah. and where books as kind of loving books is either being something that maybe is a kind of snobbery thing and I'm sort of so I'm kind of mm. conscious of it I mean I personally because I personally really identify with what you're saying I love books my grandparents lived in had a house that my granddad had books everywhere and had a very kind of had a very important looking study I'm not sure how much he used it but it looked very mm. grand and I remember being fascinated by the books and and when he died, you know, actually finally going going through some of them and reading them and discovering books that I'd never read before and, and, and feeling like I was getting hold of some of his past. Mm. So I, I, I really understand the thing of the books being objects yeah. as well as do you do, I mean, do you do you still have that kind of love of books as like a just a, a thing that's lovely 100% it hasn't gone anywhere like I keep expecting it to when you're surrounded by books every single day you think that it will get less exciting when the box arrives from the printers but it never does like the smell um like knowing that you're the first person to open a book is still incredibly exciting to me um no matter what the book is so yeah I still definitely fetishize <laughs> um books in fact my first um paid job in the wider book industry was actually um at an antiquarian book dealership in London um so when I left university I'd been I'd been doing short kind of work experience internships while I was studying and I graduated at the very beginning of the recession um oh my gosh (laughs) Uh, there were no there were no jobs um when I graduated and I knew that was going to be the case so I started panicking um months before but you but but did you have an arts degree I I did yeah so you knew you were going to be all right (laughs) (laughs) I graduated with a master's in English literature uh which me and everyone else um (laughs) yeah so, yeah, I started panicking um, about four months before I was due to graduate and started writing to every, quite literally every publisher in the UK. I went through the Writers and Artists yearbook um, and sent out letters, uh, ran out of envelopes and started using Christmas card envelopes in like Gary um, primary colours because I didn't know what else you were supposed to do. Uh, begging for jobs, and funnily enough, no one ever got back to me, except um, an antiquarian book dealership in uh, Chelsea in London. And uh, they wanted someone to catalogue their new titles. Um, and they offered to take me on for a three-month traineeship, uh, which I was incredibly glad of. Um, and it was fascinating for a while um you know they had the most (laughs) incredible collection they had books hundreds of years old worth hundreds of thousands of pounds in some cases um oh my gosh and it it was fascinating but it gets old really really quickly looking at books purely as objects 
um, you know, looking for the tiny difference between a first edition of um, Great Expectations and a knockoff first edition of Great Expectations is only interesting. Because Dickens had a lot of problems with, um, with, he had a lot of problems with people pirating his books at the time, didn't? Yeah, and I mean, I guess the thing with Dickens is, the nature of its publication um, as a serialization means that there are lots of bound collections of those pieces of his novels. And maybe, I don't know, 11 out of 12 of them will be original first editions. And that one that's missing is a, is fake. And the job of the cataloger is to look for that fake Um and it, it's super interesting for a while, but like I say, it, yeah, it got old for me really quite quickly. And when my three months was up, I decided that new books was was where I wanted to be. Can I? So I've got a, I've got a I think probably quite dumb question, but I'm really keen to ask it anyway. What is the most what is your favourite book that you own? And it can be just, oh, even if it's even if that is in a the purely not superficial, <laughs> but even if it's just like the most lovely one, and it's not necessarily about the content. But oh god, am I, am I, do I? Is it like I've asked you to choose between one of like five kittens that are in a burning building now? Is this is the, the answer? Is not cool. It's not going to make me sound well read. It's just, <laughs> it's the honest answer, but it's not going to impress anyone. Um, it's a really old copy, I think, from, it's not really old, actually. It's from the 70s. It belonged to my mum. It's a picture book called My Brimful Book. And it's highly illustrated in the kind of 1970s style poems for children. And it has um, The Night Before Christmas in it. Um, and it's the one that my mom used to read to me every Christmas. Um, that's that's probably it. Told you it's not See, cool. But that, it's me, not cool. It's, no, but to me, that's... But this exactly... No, I think it, it's great that it's not cool because basically you're saying like books, unlike... And I'm not going to start like a big rant against ebooks but i think like one of the amazing things about having something that's physical and not in a proprietary format that you can hold is that these things can accrue history mm -hmm. and that we can have these books that we pass on in some way you know like i was able to take a book from like that my granddad had owned and i'm reading through um some of the books that i know he turned through at some stage and that has meaning and of course it's not the only thing to do with books but that book to you is important because it's been on a journey mm -hmm. with you right that's like an, that's incredible that books can do that and be there at really important times in your mm -hmm. life so i don't think it's it might not be cool but it's it's something much better than cool mm. which is it's human and meaningful i like to think so <laughs> <laughs> so you are now from from there, from um, inauspicious uh, beginnings. Well, no, actually, through a huge effort of personal will that got you uh, a position. You um, you are working now at Canongate, yeah. who um, published me. Can you talk a bit about um, what your 
Job, just before we start talking about the editing process and working mm-hmm. on books, can I get can you give people a sense of what your job is and what you do on a day to day basis at the public? Sure. Um, so it's changed an awful lot, I should say. So my I've been at Cangay for nine nine years now, um, and I started as an editorial assistant. Um, which involves a hell of a lot of reading, reading submissions, writing readers' reports, um, but also all of the admin that goes along with um, working with, I think it must be something like 70 or 80 authors every year. Um, that's, that's just in a year. I mean, we're working with hundreds of authors across our list. Um, so there's a lot of admin that goes along with making sure that we publish the books well, making sure everyone within the company um, knows everything that they need to know about the books. And that's really, that a lot of that falls to the editorial assistant. So I did that for a number of years and probably about three or four years into my time at Canongate, I started um, commissioning my own titles. It's quite a slow, that's a slow process and it's very gradual. Um, now, so nine years in, my job is to commission fiction and non-fiction. Our list is very broad. We like to think that we can publish anything as long as it's the best example of itself, of the kind of book that it is. So we publish some children's fiction, we publish poetry, um, very literary novels, genre novels, um, cookery. We publish a huge range of titles. Um, I primarily work on fiction, but I also work on um, memoir and hybrid nonfiction. Also, um, what's what's hybrid? Hybrid nonfiction. What's hybrid non-fiction? That's, a, that's a term we've started using that means almost nothing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, Every time I ask someone in publishing to to, to to like, I go, they use a term, uh, genre or something like that. And I say, what does that mean? The answer is always, um, uh, I don't I don't really know. <laughs> I don't think anyone knows. Uh, hybrid nonfiction, I take to mean um, nonfiction that's not easily classified. So it's, it's usually memoir woven through with something else. Um, so, for example, in March, um, we are publishing a book called Unspeakable by an author called Harriet Shawcross, which is part memoir in that it tells the story of how, as a teenage girl, she found um, communicating very difficult. And for almost a year while she was at school, she stopped speaking um, at school. She would do everything that she could not to communicate. Um And she's become fascinated with this period in her life Um, and the kind of the wider conversation around um, selective mutism and people who struggle with language, but also about taboo. So it's part memoir, it's part history, it's part travel writing and journalism. It's it's a book around a theme, but it doesn't. Now you now you explain it right. Like I get exactly what it is and i can think of loads of examples it's like going i'm going on a kind of it'll often be stuff going i'm going on a journey and this is why the but this is kind of like a personal quest right Mm -hmm. i have to do this because so i'm thinking of like um 
something like what doesn't kill you well i can't remember who the guy who wrote it who had gone to like do to debunk this guy who the ice Iceman wim hof who was had like got the world record for staying underwater in the ice and then found that like and then got addicted to kind of like doing all these extreme sports himself and dipping himself in the ice. And it's about his journey, mm-hmm. but it was, it's also about him exploring stuff. Elective mutism, very close to my heart as well. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm married to someone who was an elective mute. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's a really interesting and fascinating area. Okay, cool. That's really interesting. Can I just wind you back a tiny uh-huh. bit? Because the thing I wanted to ask you is about when you were starting off, because I think this be really, this is interesting and in, sort of something that a lot of writers ask me about. When you were looking at, you said I, it was your job to read submissions mm. and write readers' reports. Yeah. Can you tell us what that looks like? I mean, because I suppose the distinction that a lot of people know about or think they know about is between stuff submitted by agents and the slush pile, which is unsolicited mm-hmm. things. What were you looking at and what did you have to do? So... Um... Both, so unsolicited and solicited manuscripts from agents. Um, I, when I first started working at Canongate, it was possibly the most useful thing to say. Um, I was the assistant to two senior commissioning editors, um, one who worked primarily on nonfiction, one who worked primarily on fiction. And all of the submissions from agents that came into those two editors um, they would very often pass them to me so I could log them um, and make sure that we knew they existed and they were on the system and we knew we had to respond to them, but also to quite often be the first reader. Um, and by that point, you know you know your colleagues, you know the editor's tastes, so you can read the submission letter from the agent, you can read the first few chapters and you know which submissions are most likely to be of interest to those editors. Um, so what I was doing was sort of shuffling things up and down the priority pile. Um, it wasn't that I had any kind of final decision on any of these submissions. It was really just about making sure that the right things for them got to the top of the list. So you said like, you said it was looking at the agent's letter. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that even that you might make that decision, have made that decision based on on, on the letter mm. that came with it before you got Yeah, I mean, sure. Like, if... Um, because the relationship between an editor and an agent is a really important and special one in that um, by the time you're a commissioning editor, you have very strong relationships with a number of agents and they, they know your taste. So they know that what they send you is hopefully going to tick all your boxes but some agents um who you you don't know particularly well or you've never met who just want you to consider something they might send you like for example if an agent sent me a cookery title i wouldn't have a clue what to do with that you know it's not my area i don't know (laughs) i don't know a carrot from a swede so that if i read the letter i would know instantly that that's not for me it's not that easy with fiction. Um, you you can't tell. I mean, if if I received a submission for a romance novel, I probably know I know that Canongate don't publish that. Or if we do, it's one every five years. Um, so the chances of that being a book for us are very slim. 
Um, I suppose that's what I mean. It's you wouldn't for fiction. You wouldn't make a decision based on reading the email alone. That would be very foolish. I guess I'm bringing that up because I in my in my head, yeah, I'm like imagining kind of howls of anguish as people imagine that kind of uh, one. I, I when I hear from people, one of the most common things I get from authors, and I get like emails every day. I realise this is not going to be to someone in the commission editor or publishers. You go, oh, you get a couple of emails every day from writers of oh, a big wow. Like I, I obviously you um, get avalanches of them, but like one of the most common things they ask me about or the anxieties mm-hmm. I see is around like querying this idea of querying and and writing my covering letter Uh and writing my synopsis I think a lot of people have this fear that they're going to get that wrong either in the approach to an agent or in the approach to an editor Mm. and that editors have like uh, applying this kind of ruthless kind of like sieve that any mistake or deviation or something that reveals you to not understand the intricacies of the publisher is going to get your work like flamed without a chance. No. So I guess that's why I was asking it because like some people will have heard you say that and go, Oh, like, Oh, you're, you're chucking stuff out based on just the covering letter. My goodness. Oh no. Oh no. What's the secret? Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, we would never do anything like that to be honest. Like I don't know anybody Maybe I'm being very naive, but I don't know any editors that would read a covering letter and decide from that that the book isn't even worth a glance. Um, like I say, if it's if it's something that we simply don't publish, for example, poetry, like we publish a handful of poets and we very, very rarely take on debuts. So if I received a debut poetry collection, I would certainly read it but it would be down the bottom of the priority pile because I know the chances are really slim. We have one slot every decade. Um, That's what I mean about the prioritizing. It's not that we wouldn't open the document and take a read. That's our job. Um, It's just about making sure that we can prioritize our time because we do get an avalanche of submissions. it's probably terrifying for writers to hear these things because I, I can just imagine that it is. But I, for example, I went on holiday for a week in November. And when I came back, I had 35 novels from agents in my inbox. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say 35, like, just sub, just submitted unsolicited. No. But from those were agented. Yeah. Oh my God, Joe! I... <laughs> oh my God, what? I told you. <laughs> oh my God, I'm wow. I'm le- I'm learning stuff every day, and I'm not sure I want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah wow. it's a huge, huge number. How do so? How let's get on to that then. How do you deal with that? How do I deal with it? How do you deal with that now? Not like, always you're very now well. On the kind of like sharp end. <laughs> Not always well. I feel like I'm constantly apologising for not having three pairs of eyes um, or being able to read fast enough. Um, I don't always get to the end. In fact, more often than not, I don't get to the end of the novels that I receive because it's just not possible. Um, Being real, it's just not possible. So I work in the kind of 50-page rule. 
So I read the first 50 pages. If it's still got me after 50 pages, I'll read the next. Um, yeah, it's the only way that I've found that works, being really brutal after 50 pages and saying, is this one of the 10 new pieces of fiction that we're going to publish in the next year? Because that, that's the reality at Canongate. We only have a very limited number of slots for new fiction. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's, it's ruthless, brutal. And I know it's... I know it's going to sound. I think. I mean, I think that that's true. I've, you know, I've not been an editor, but I've read over a hundred manuscripts for places like the Literary Consultancy, full mm. manuscripts, and I never found myself in a, you know, they were all unpublished manuscripts. I never sat found myself in a in a situation where, having read the first fifty pages, problems that existed mm. there, suddenly disappeared, mm. and the rest was. I've never had it suddenly meteorically take off after the first 50 mm. pages. If I was interested in the first 50 pages, sometimes it kind of falls apart somewhere later mm. on, but I'd never had it. The first 50 pages were really hard going and then it kind of broke out of its cocoon yeah. into a butterfly. So occasionally, I think 50 that pages is not harsh. You know. um, I've definitely found that maybe, maybe 10 times in the last nine years, I found a novel where I've been so glad that I pushed past that 50 page mark because it, it flips um, and it feels like you're reading a different novel. Um, and that's actually really exciting because as an editor, that's something that I can work with. You know, I mean, no, that's like finding a hedgehog in the bonfire before you light it. <laughs> and, and then, and then never <laughs> no. being able to quite relax at bonfire night ever again no. because you're like, what if there's a baby hedgehog in there? Like, that must be... That's the worst <laughs> thing. I know it's, like, kind of great, but now, like, every time you go to finish at 50, you're like, what no. if... What I if do, 10 pages down that, the line? That's when I skim. That's when I skim. Um, I am really, really careful. Like, that's... I hope that's reassuring to any writers listening that um we want we want to find good manuscripts we want to publish books so you know we're full of hope <laughs> when we're reading um but yeah you're right it doesn't make life easy it doesn't make the 50 page rule easy yeah no i i i, I think people need to hear I, I think it's great that you're full of hope and you're trying to encourage them, Joe, but they also need to like wake up now. And I'm like going, if you cannot make your first 50 pages compelling, like you need to hear this and you need to accept this as like a bollocking, make your 50 pages as tight as mm -hmm. they can be, because it doesn't matter if your, if your book, you can't spend the first 50 pages setting up your train track. You've got to like have something there for the for the reader for the editor to find mm. even if it's just this just a tone or something can you go can you turn to i know it's an incredibly mm. broad question but you can can you go through some of the things that you find in those first 50 pages that make you go oh like that just make your sort of antennae kind of like stick up and go hang on hang on i might they might be onto something here oh goodness <sighs> this just has that feel mm. i mean if you if you have to go, you know, and if there's specific examples that you want to use, then because of course this is going to all be books that are 
by the very nature good so you won't be insulting anyone if you go well there's this one book and uh, it was I can so you know things that are the good that maybe either it's style or content wise or something what does do they tend to have that make you go ooh oh god I mean what I'm always looking for and it again it's quite hard to pin down what I'm talking about with this. <laughs> It's the voice, it's the narrative voice. Um, so the books the books that I think work at Canongate, and by work I mean the entire company gets them. They get published brilliantly, they get well received. They're the books that have a narrator or a protagonist who the whole company starts referring to by their first name as if they're a person sitting in the room with us. Um, so I'm looking for that kind of protagonist or that kind of narrator. Oh. So, cause I had a, con- I had a conversation um, last week with a book, book publicist <laughs> and we started talking about the phenomenon of, what she called super leads oh, yes. um, in publishing and the kind of books that kind of get a huge push behind them and everyone's talking about, and I guess this year that's, well, last year and then spilling into this year, that's been Eleanor Oliphant is completely mm-hmm. fine. Um, and that was, that's why I'm interested that you said mm-hmm. voice because to a lot of people when, and I'm not accusing you of this at all, but to a lot of people when publishing says we like novels with a voice what they mean is we and and please feel free to refute this if i'm being stupid or unfair or a complete knob i'm completely (sighs) fine with taking that but but what they mean is we want a novel narrated by a middle-class white protagonist who is in some way um an outsider but is still white and uh, middle class and probably straight as well um and those are the books that like people get behind and go oh it's a, such a relatable no. character and so is that true or is that is that oh, not? i I'm totally to put disagree to you with the, this. The, the objection <laughs> i hear great and um so why am i talking uh a bollocks and is that just me um me showing my uh incredible prejudices it's not about being maybe it is about being relatable it's about being believable i think um Oh, God, it's so hard to explain, but I I really don't think that's true. I don't think we're looking for middle-aged, middle-class, white dudes. Like, certainly we've got a lot of work to do to make our industry more diverse. But I think diverse voices are the interesting voices to me and to so many people. Um in fact, if I read a voice that feels too relatable and like I've read it a million times and I've met that person a million times, that's going to be an immediate turnoff for me. Um, so it's not about relatability. I think it's about it's about believing in this character, being them being so real to you that they f- feel like someone who could be sitting in the room. You know everything about. Can you them. give me a couple? Of, can you give me a couple of examples of uh, either books you've published or other people's books that you've read where you? that are to you epitomise, and I, you know, I understand you're speaking for your own personal tastes, um, 
but for you, do you epitomise voice books that have got a great voice that you go oh because I to me my interpretation of voice is always that you start reading it and you go and you kind of like your shoulders relax and you go I'm in a really safe pair of hands oh yeah Mm. great I'm in I'm on board I kind of that's where I kind of want to pay my ticket I go yep yeah I'm I'm, I want to ride on this train because I I I trust it's like a a good voice feels like trust to me I I mean there are so many um, different so many different types of voice obviously but the one that leaps immediately to mind that Canon Gets Published in the last year was a debut novel called Sal um, by uh, an author called Mick Kitson. And Sal is about a 13-year-old girl called Sal from a very working-class background in um, on the west coast of Scotland who takes her younger sister, Pepper, um, and runs away from, a, from an abusive home life to live wild in the forest of Galloway. And Sal is one of the most unique characters I think I've ever read. Um, And that West Coast Scottish, um, I can't think of the word now, that voice that's stuck in my head. Um, Just, it's like nothing I've ever read before. And it's completely convincing. You can see her, you can really imagine that she's sitting with you and the strength of her as a character pulls you through. I mean, the novel has a great pitch also, but it's, um, her voice is just like a punch to the gut from the first page. Um, I suppose that's what I mean. But literary writers, like, yeah. it's entirely different for, oh, like, Reservoir 13. The voice in that is incredible, but it's a different kind of voice. That's, that's less easy to describe, I think. That's about the writing on the line and feeling like every sentence is is strong and perfect and should be there and is doing its work. Yeah, I mean, I like, I, I suppose, like thinking of Canongate novels that I've um, that I've read that pulled me along. I don't want to say just by voice because that, that voice is. Is the novel, you know, like it's, it, I don't mean to make it sound reductive like that, and also because they do have great plots mm-hmm. as well. But I guess, like, did you guys publish, yes, Buddha yeah. by Anne Donovan? Did I imagine that? Yeah, I think that's like an amazing book that, that starts off sounding like it might be a kind of bit of a kind of like Brit mm-hmm. flick, kind of like um, a bit quirkier than it actually is. It sounds, you know, it's a very comic, mm-hmm. funny opening, but then goes into this guy who this this working class Scottish dad who is deciding he says I've turned into a Buddhist and and he's actually a really really powerful punishing often very funny but often very sad story about this guy coming to terms with himself and actually feels incredibly modern with like the conversation we have today about like toxic masculinity and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing very contemporary thing of this guy working stuff out um also mark mcnay's fresh yeah. i think is just an absolutely fantastic about a guy working mm-hmm. in a chicken factory whose brother is kind of out of prison it's just amazing and it's great and it's so so mm-hmm. good on the line and has this voice that drags that carries you through but mark Monet has got an incredible craft on the line incredible attention to detail he writes these dream sequences i've said this actually to people listening they're a great example he wrote these dream sequences where you don't notice when you're reading but all the words in the dream sequence are only uh, words of one syllable 
Um, it's great. It's great. His style is amazing. So, yeah. So those are some great examples of voice. People are going to be listening, going. So do, if so, is that really important? If someone's submitting something, then they've got to look and because they're. It it seems also a very difficult thing for a writer to come at and go. Well, how do I add voice to my story? How can writers start thinking about it? Because you must have worked with writers where you've helped them. You see a voice in it, but there's parts that it's not there. Or how do you help writers bring those kind of things to the forefront and make sure that it's pulling in the right direction? If that's not too mm. vague a question. I think voice is a tough one in that if a novel... You can't put something in that isn't at least already there in part. Um, you can help strengthen the voice you can and you usually well I usually do that by looking at character and working out what's least believable or what's missing or what you've not said enough about to make the character really come alive um I try and pinpoint anything that makes the character seem not quite fully formed um and there usually are some points there's some squishy bits that needs strengthening. Uh, strengthening. Um, what else would I say? I mean, quite often something that I notice is the writer's voice sort of infecting the characters' voices. So you'll find that certain characters in one novel feel very similar. There's not enough um, definition between voices. Um, that happens an awful lot. Um, and that, again, that's about interrogating character. Um, and also, it, it, it's, about, it's about fiction, isn't it? I think a lot of writers maybe put too much of themselves into their books. Um, and as a result, some of the characters feel muddy or they bleed into each other. Um, what else to say? I think those are the main things with voice. It's really hard. If you don't see it there at all, you can't create you can't create it from nothing, but you can pull the strings to make certain bits tighter. Can you thank you? I think that's really really helpful. And right, it, given that I just <laughs> said you can't reduce voice to being something mm. that isn't the novel. Of course, you can't add it in, but it's really really useful to hear that thing about making sure that there's proper distinctions between characters. It is very diffi difficult to not to not step into your characters and give them all the same kind mm. of little tick. It's like a bit of handwriting. I, I spoke to the psychologist uh, James W. Pennebaker and he's done like statistical analysis, computer analysis on people's novels and found that male writers can't, that no, that, that, that we bring all these kind of like subconscious biases into our writing and that ma male writers pronoun use when they're writing female characters is typical of males and female authors pronoun. It, like it's very nerdy stuff to do with kind of like content words and function words and stuff that we can't consciously process. The brain can't, but um, it's fa it's kind of fascinating. And I think for our purposes, there definitely are, like you say, some points where you can of cleavage, where you can look at a character and just 
make sure that this person is speaking as themselves and not as your kind of <laughs> sock puppet. It's it's hard. It's really tricky. And it's and this is why you need uh, an editor because the, when you're writing a novel, it takes ages and your brain goes to sleep for days at a time. Um, and you need someone to go back and go, what was happening here? And you go, oh, that was the week when I wasn't getting very much sleep because uh, next door's dog was barking. Um, for people, because so many people who listen to the podcast mm-hmm. are writers, I'm going to do that awful oh, thing now of saying, um, have you got yet? Um, have you got any... And the word tips normally sort of brings people out in hives, but um, what are some things that you... See, I suppose what would be really useful, actually, is if there's any points that are kind of like the liminal cases, like bits that something that makes you turn down something where you would have been interested in it, but this thing just fell short. Or what are some things, because obviously you're never going to publish stuff that isn't within the purview of your things that Mm -hmm. are for you or what can get a gate published. But what are some areas that people can work on that help editors have an excuse to go yes i'm going to take this to the next level yes i want to take this on um oh gosh the biggest i think the thing that i say the most often um when i'm turning down novels is that it loses momentum it loses it's the plotting um and it's not something that in the abstract, I can I, I can't help much because it's so unique to each book. But I feel like so many um, they lose steam about seventy five pages in, and everything becomes a little bit woolly and a bit loose. And they've set up their characters, they've set up their um, their setting, they've got the key problem or the thing that's propelling the character through but somewhere in the middle it all just it all crumbles um like a souffle I suppose sinks um and I usually know where they're going I think they usually know where the novel's going to end they just they're not able to keep that pacing going um sorry that's that's very um blethery no that's no that's really no, it's really useful, actually, because like we're talking about the mushy middle and this thing that when you get to the second act, you know what your set piece is at the end. You know what the big thing... that, And, of course, you've started writing with this kind of, like, explosive or just very interesting scene, two people having an... Uh, they're a, a, having a stand-up row in a glass blowers or something. What a brilliant literary set piece. Like, you've got those things, and it's in this middle bit where you feel like you're moving forward. So... In the past, when you have worked with writers, and for whatever reason, despite that mushy middle, you've taken them on, there was something in there that you couldn't quite resist and you thought, mm-hmm. we can work on this. What are some kinds of solutions that you've proposed that, what does a writer need to do to stop the middle of their circus tent um, uh, flopping down and suffocating the clowns? Uh, cut. Sorry. Um, delete. Um yeah, usually I find that the solution to the mushy middle is that too long has been spent in one place or with one character. There is there is too much in one section of the book. It's not adding enough and it just it slows the whole book down. Um 
So usually the solution is cutting something. Occasionally it's we haven't spent enough time with this character since you introduced them in the first quarter. They've disappeared. When they reemerge, we don't care because they've been gone so long. Occasionally that happens. Um, yeah, I mean, those are the two, the two solutions that come up the most often, cutting and adding. <laughs> um, it's very simple, but it, it's actually it's very difficult to see, I think. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, why do you think people... Because, yeah, of course, like we're talking about it now and it and it, it seems obvious and I'm uh, agreeing with you. And yet I really struggle with, as you as you know, I really struggle with cutting stuff down and I really struggle with not having elephantine first drafts. Um, and then later on it being obvious when it's like you cut this and the whole thing still holds. And you're like, well, I didn't need that. Why do why do you think it's it's tricky for authors to see that? Because it must be, I mean, frustrating for you for people to not go. They've done this very indulgent kind of like stroll around the lake where everybody says a few kind of funny lines and there's some sexual tension, but nothing is advanced. Why don't authors see that? Um, right. <laughs> Something about the show don't tell. I mean, I think in lots of cases. Um, or at least in the cases of lots of writers that I've worked with, it seems to be that they've imagined this world. They know it so intimately and in so much detail that they want to put all of that detail in. So when, when I'm talking about cutting sections, losing certain characters, it's because... They desperately want to include these details and they feel like if they don't, the reader won't fully understand the world that they've made. Um, and maybe what you don't see is that the reader doesn't need to understand that. They don't need to understand everything about that world because you do. You know, that's great background to have and it will maybe add flavor or color in certain areas of the novel, but they don't need to understand every peripheral character um, or every past event that's led up to this point. They just, they need to know the essence of the characters. Um, and that's very, again, it's very kind of um, abstract, vague advice, but I think just trying really hard to be honest about whether the information that you're giving the reader is really necessary really adding anything to their understanding of the character or the setting or the backstory, just really interrogating that and being honest. Um, I think, I think that's, that's, that's right. And it, and it, and, and it is something that um, it's one of the reasons it can be useful to have a writing group or some beta readers that you can send something out and ask them what were they interested in, what they didn't understand. Because occasionally people will say, I wanted to know a bit more about what did this character, but you're right. And it's one of the reasons I, I know from having, uh, I've my main cultural import at the moment, the thing that I'm watching over and over again, because I have a two-year-old daughter mm -hmm. who's frozen. And um, I've, so I've discovered that they, it was very, very late in the editing process, in the writing process, they decided to not mention, they cut out the explanation of where Elsa's <laughs> came from. <laughs> 
up until then, they had like loads of stuff about it. They came up with all these different things. They had a narrator, a troll saying, you know, when a child is born on under the star of X and mm. da, 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 da. And then they look to the story and go, mm. we don't need to know for the purposes mm-hmm. of this story. They did. They exist to make the story happen. It doesn't actually what what changes about the plot, what changes about our investment in her powers, mm-hmm. knowing where they come from. It, it doesn't actually have any it doesn't it, it, we're not relying on that to solve a plot problem later on and it doesn't create a problem which is it doesn't create tension and it doesn't resolve tension or develop character mm-hmm. it's just a thing so yes i think that's really useful advice that like and i think you know any genre writers listening i love world building i i, I love <laughs> you dearly as my siblings but for goodness sake if it's not necessary um then either get it out in half a sentence mm-hmm. or cut it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, it sounds brutal. I tell you what, though, like this this theory needs to be applied to a lot of Netflix series. I have abandoned so many Netflix series in the last couple of months because they are so bloated and baggy and nothing happens for episodes at a time. Um, and I know why. I know why it's because it's about the hours that you spend watching the screen. It's not about storytelling. And I'm slightly worried that this is going to bleed into fiction um, and that people are going to start thinking that this is how stories are told. It's not. Are you going to disagree? So you're saying that like, like, no, I'm not. I totally, I totally (laughs) agree with you. I totally agree with you. I'm, I'm just, I feel, I feel sad that um, it's it's just a thing where the first episodes have to get in and get your attention, and then there's an assumption that once you're kind of on board, we can slow mm-hmm. down a little bit. We can. Da, 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 da. I think it's got better. I do think it's got better since we have fewer sort of syndicated TV series where the show has to reset to zero by mm-hmm. the end of every episode, so they can be watched out of sequence. I think you know. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a really great example of a show that comes at a very awkward mm. point in the movement from Monster of the Week towards episodic building towards mid-season and mm. end-of-season climaxes. And you have very awkward, um, like a very awkward mix of, of events that happen that have no repercussions that don't develop character at all. Everyone's reset to zero at the end of the episode. And huge sort of cataclysmic changes and often those changes happen because a series arc was written that have no have no character motivation in the episode they happen because they had to happen to set up the ending and i I think it's it would be interesting to see how but the answer is to everybody is to is to get your knowledge of reading by reading not by watching movies or i know i brought i know i brought up (laughs) frozen i know all i'm doing is watching frozen i mentioned netflix so (laughs) um what do you so i guess that brings us quite neatly on to what i sort of wanted to ask at the end which is i've heard people talking about actually like netflix and the rise of sort of binge watching as being like a big threat to books Mm. and um authors backlist and stuff i wondered if you could just talk to me about some any check the changes you've seen in publishing over the last over your nearly decade in canongate and what it's looking like for like authors now or the prospect of being an author it's never been easy but i just wondered if you what how from your perspective from where you're sitting 
what changes have you seen and where do you feel publishing? I don't feel like readers have changed all that much, to be honest. I don't think the type of fiction that we're publishing has changed dramatically. I think the way we're publishing it has changed. Um, And I think that is, do you know what I mean by lead times? Um, So Uh, how far in advance retailers want to see the cover, how far in advance we need to have printed proofs. Those lead times are getting longer and longer and longer, um, which has lots of challenges. That's really interesting. I thought you were going to say they were getting you shorter. Would think so, I imagine but no. <laughs> a super like internet I mean, age, but but longer. Why are they getting longer? Oh, um, gosh, I couldn't say. I mean, I suppose it's it's to do with review pages. Review space is getting smaller. There's less coverage. Everybody wanting to be the book that reviewers remember, that retailers remember. You know. It, the amount of time you spend talking about something um, gets it becomes how exciting the book is, if you see what I mean. So Eleanor Oliphant, for example, um, I think they were talking about that for about two years before it was published. I'm, I'm sure of it. Like it. That was a book that was built into this huge um what is it like two million copy bestseller over a very very long time um i think it's just about it's about having the time to create that word of mouth buzz within the trade because i hear this all the time and yet um from you know uh, from well from everyone i talk to in publishing actually they talk about the importance of word of mouth mm-hmm. and, and buzz but actually so much of it happens within the trade that to people like me who is in the trade mm. but not if you see on the edges of it uh, um i don't actually see any of it so it's really interesting to me that you say that, that book was being talked about like two years in advance because sometimes i've known about those buzzes because I seem to have a propensity to be friends with quite a lot of people who are um, who are those authors. Um, as I hear from them, they go, oh, shit. My, like, just everyone's gone to the uh, London Book Fair and they're talking about my <laughs> book. And, and I'm like, oh, great. I'm really fucking pleased for you. Well done. But so what did you... Is that and that so that makes it sound like that there's space for fewer the because only one or two books a year can be mm. that book and the what happens to the rest of them? Oh, and, and I mean, Eleanor Oliphant is a massive outlier. It's the best-selling book of the last year by by far, a uh, best-selling novel. Thirty percent of the literary fiction market in the UK. Yeah, I, mean, I have no year? idea if that's true or not, but it's certainly it is it, a huge outlier, and there usually is one. Um, I mean, the girl on the train, gone girl. Um, there's usually there is usually one a year, um, and that's a combination of a really long time having been spent building the book within the trade, um, a bit of luck, and then the the organic word of mouth happens after that point. I think. Um, I mean, those three novels you've mentioned are all. Uh... First person, am I right in thinking they're all first person narrator oh, novels? Gosh, I can't remember. Um, that have quite a strong, that have a reasonably strong mm-hmm. voice. Um, they have, well, they have short first person narrators in them. Gone Girl has a first person 
narrator but i don't think the whole thing is mm-hmm. narrated by her um where was i going with this <laughs> oh was, sorry i interrupted you beg your pardon so about? you said those yes. are outliers but there was uh, yeah and but then there's all these other books that can't that don't get talked about for two years so how you still want them to find readers and yeah, stuff. Yeah, so definitely. I mean, there there are lots and lots and lots of books that do incredibly well, but there are only so there's only so much space for the, the massive outlier. Um, but I think the lead times. It's. I think we sometimes forget that the book trade is just um, a group of people who really, really love books and talk about books and almost nothing else. Um, so getting the trade, the book industry excited is a really, is really, really important because we are the ones talking to everybody else about books. Um, it's completely necessary to set a book up and having more time to do that is usually in a book's benefit. Of course, there are some books where time is of the essence and if you wait a year, it will have lost some of its timeliness and it, it will be less current and therefore the opposite is true. You want to get it out as quickly as possible. Um, but it, feel, it feels like to me, particularly with debut fiction, um, we need more and more time to set the books up properly. I have a... Well, first, I want to say thank you very much for giving up your time to be on the show today and explain all these things, because it's really, really it's really interesting and really useful and just thank you for being so sort of honest and answering my sort of slightly dumb questions about no no it, i feel basics. like all of my answers are incredibly um vague and woolly but yeah hopefully hopefully they are useful and they certainly are honest so um the one the question i wanted to finish with um is basically have you got any books coming up that you're publishing i am not uh... <laughs> present company accepted um that you're excited about that you want to mention because those are things i can put i'll put pre-order links in the show notes um and on my website timclepert.co.uk so anyone listening can go and pre-order them or if they're out already can uh pick themselves up a copy um just wondering if there's any titles that you've got that of course you're excited about yeah, all of them I mean, but anyone well, i've already mentioned on people like which is out in march um which is completely completely wonderful um uh there is a debut novel coming out in june um which i'm incredibly excited about it's called my name is monster by a debut writer called katie hale got a copy got the copy of it right here (laughs) which is a retelling of robinson crusoe with um only female survivors in an empty version of britain um it's again this is a voice-driven novel that I knew I had to publish pretty much from the first page. Monster's voice is completely captivating. Um, oh, what else? Um, we've got a new novel from Kevin Barry coming out this year, which we're all incredibly excited about. Um, a new novel from James Meek. You know what? I'm going to send you a big list. <laughs> cool. Okay, cool um that that's 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 very exciting and um yeah i've i've started reading uh my name is monster by katie hale and it is um <laughs> it's, it's it's really it's really it's a it's a great it, it actually typifies a lot of the stuff mm-hmm. that we've been talking about funnily enough you're right like which is a voice that 
mm-hmm. makes you want to listen. That's the thing, a compelling voice. There's so many, you know, voices, but some something and there's a confidence and a spareness to it that are really it's very it's so interesting actually because now I think about it I'm exactly I'm in the same camp as you and I think it's fine which is I can't quite define what makes a voice compelling and that's why Mm -hmm. I continue to read books and seek them out because I don't quite know what makes me want to sit down and listen to someone and it can be different Mm -hmm. things every time I can't Um, remember and I think maybe that's part of the reason why I listen is, is to try and work out why I'm listening to I can't to remember them. who said it. Um, I think it was possibly an agent. When asked what they were looking for in a novel, they said, I don't know what I'm looking for because I'm looking for something that I've never read before. Um, that's the honest answer, actually. It's not helpful. And that's incredibly <laughs> hopeful, right? Yes, it's because it's so hopeful. Because it's like going, anyone who's out there now who's... And I keep... <laughs> I keep it like addressing people um I, I slightly I think doing this show this long and knowing that now I've got an audience make me slightly evangelical but that's really hopeful because it's like going if you are sitting down and you're writing something and you go but this doesn't look quite like anything I've read before this isn't quite the same I, I don't know no one's published a book mm-hmm. this book before that's one of the things that that might be precisely the reason mm-hmm. that people fall in love with it because there'll be a your book shaped hole in an editor's heart and they'll go oh oh he- i didn't know i needed this until mm-hmm. like until i read it yep Phew. <laughs> wow well i'm glad we sorted that out thank you very much joe i really really appreciate your uh your your coming uh on the show and i'll put links to all those uh books Great. in the show thank notes. you and to everyone else listening, I, well, basically, I'll put up those those links as I as promised. You can also um, go on my website and uh, find ways to follow me. You can, if you want to support the show, then the best way to do that is to uh, follow one of the links and uh, buy my book or pre-order the Ice House when it uh, through one of the links. And you can also go to my coffee page at ko-fi forward slash Tim Clare. And uh, drop me a few squid to help keep the lights on. Thank you very much and have a wonderful writing week.